Regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Horwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Oh, what's happening? What's happening? Matt's a year older. (laughs) (laughs) And I've got something for you, Matt. Uh oh. Which you can open now if you like. Oh, oh, thank you. Hey. (laughs) For the listeners, it's a silver envelope. Yes, there's nothing like visual props for a podcast, really. Waiting for a tentacle to jump out. Oh. <laughs> I'm sure that translates as fuckfish. <laughs> oh, complete with an elder sign. Yeah. Happy birthday, Matt, Paul, and the good friends of Jackson and Elias, of course. Hey, thank you very much. You want to do an audio description? Yes, the uh, the front has... I suppose that's a, it's a salmon or trout? It's a ra- rainbow trout. Rainbow trout. Leaping out of green water and then uh, inscribed in silver pen on the top. Excla- star, exclamation, cross, square, star, exclamation, cross, fish! <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that, will get, that will go on my shelf. <laughs> so many happy returns for this week, Matt. Yes, happy birthday. Thank you, thank you. I feel old now. <laughs> You're 32, man. That's not old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have this discussion again in a couple of months when I have my birthday. <laughs> now it's come to my attention that we have some more reviews on iTunes. Holy crap! Oh wow! Yes, indeed. I, I had a quick look today, and the thing with iTunes is there's each country has its own like site for it. So there's there's reviews for um, the UK, and then if you change your view to America. There's, there's reviews there, and then there are also reviews for Australia and I don't know how many others, because I haven't looked at all the others, but... Oh, wow. We must dedicate ourselves, Scott, and look through all the countries of the world <laughs> and see if there are reviews in yeah, they, they can't languages. Be, there can't be that many of them. I can't imagine. But who knows? I'm using Google Translate if I can't read it. You know that. <laughs> but we have a review from Keeper Ant, who we met at Concrete Cow yeah. only recently. Yes, mm-hmm. Anthony... But he says, with great age comes great wisdom, they say. Who say? People of great age, usually. In the case of this podcast, I would say, age and wisdom walk hand in hand. From the dawn of the days of Cthulhu and down through the countless eons to the here and now, arcane knowledge is dispensed and discussed. Knowledge of the mythos, as well as more common horrors, is the meat and drink of that our disturbingly cheery narrators feast upon. I think he's talking about you there, Matt. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been described as cheery. (laughs) (laughs) If esoteric gaming, film and televisual awakening is your goal, then chant the spell to open the portal. If you fear nameless starry wisdom and the awful realisation it brings, then seek elsewhere. Also contains lots of humour, some swearing and occasional barbershop, you have been warned. <laughs> the barbershop needs the explicit tag just that for that alone. Oh, God, yes. So, uh, yes, thank you very much, Keeper Ant, for that, uh, that, that glowing review on iTunes. Yes, okay. thank you very much, sir. Indeed. And we've got another review, this time from Australia, uh, from Daniel79. I discovered the good friends of Jackson Elias through their YouTube channel while searching for Call of Cthulhu RPG information. Their episodes on that were quite good, however. They were also quite hard to find, as the episode titles are pretty vague, as are the descriptions. You have to click the link to the website to really figure out what most of the episodes are about, which is pretty annoying. For the most part, the episodes are humorous and light-hearted, and I would love to listen to with my kids if it wasn't for the occasional gratuitous expletive. All in all, a great podcast that I would highly recommend if you're a Call of Cthulhu uh, or Lovecraft fan. Hang on a minute, we swear a lot. Well, I don't know, we swear a lot, but there is swearing in the show occasionally. And, and when you say we, I think it's probably mostly me. Well, yeah. I think Matt's dropped one already. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when he read about the fish. <laughs> um, 
But that, that is a, that is an interesting point, and one that I have wondered about. Because I mean, some of the shows, you know, they they avoid getting the explicit tag on on iTunes and so on by not having any swearing in the show or bleeping it out. I mean, I don't think we want to go down that route necessarily. I, I I don't feel in the need to do that. But should we do? You know, should I? It wouldn't be that difficult to put out an optional feed with you know those words bleeped out. Yeah, I I've always wondered about the explicit tag anyway because I mean we don't often go into really nasty stuff on the show but I guess we've talked about games like Cult and uh, you know the, Brian the Lumley. <laughs> there's no need for that kind of language <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we have you know dipped into the occasional bit of subject you know, matter which might be you know on, on, on the borderline when say brainstorming stuff and I, I wonder whether even without the swearing that would justify an explicit tag Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I guess we've kind of, we're talking to, we're preaching to the converted, I suppose, in that if you're listening to this show, you've chosen to listen to it regardless of the fact that it's got an, um, an explicit tag. Um, but, well, tell us what you think. If you'd prefer to have the option of having a version that has beeps, or, yeah. or you know other people that would, or you know people that have been put off it for that reason, or that... Or if indeed some people have a filter, I think you can have on iTunes so that you don't see those explicit um, options. Yeah, we certainly have discussed the idea of perhaps putting out two versions of the show, one unexpurgated and one with the, the swearing bleed. I, if that would appeal to you, then yeah, please let us know. Or if indeed it would reach a wider audience, then you know that's all to the good. But um, I think rather than a bleep, it's got to be like the family fortunes. <coughs> Instead, have it, have it some kind of decent sound rather than just beep. Well, we, we could kind of reverse what we did in the early episodes, and every time we swear, we just dub over the sound of someone saying, attract fish. <laughs> that wouldn't be at all confusing. <laughs> or, or, or annoying. Right. I'm sorry, I'm a right attract fish sometimes. We've also had a comment up on the website from Roger B.W., uh, regarding our recent talk on non-Euclidean geometry, may have, may or may not have included ties in that and conversation. We did, we did indeed ask if any of the listeners had a clue what it meant to I, uh, write in and tell us. And we did actually get quite a lot of response from that, yeah. particularly on our Facebook group. Uh, David Smith and a few of his old gaming friends who uh, have drifted into mathematical and, and physical research or, or studies uh, actually ended up giving us lots of very, very in-depth information there, which was fantastic. Ooh. Right. In which case, Roger B.W. has to say, Euclidean geometry deals with in inverted commas, flat space. The sum of the internal angles of a triangle is always 180 degrees. In two-dimensional space, two straight lines either meet at a single point or are parallel and never meet at all. If you follow a square course, brackets, go five miles, turn right 90 degrees, but do the same thing three more times, you end up back where you started. The area of a circle is pi times the radius squared. In a non-Euclidean space, these things may not be true. Consider a sphere with two points 90 degrees apart on the equator and one more on the pole. I'm trying to visualise that myself. Yeah, so it's like the pole and then go down to the equator uh -huh. and then go a quarter away around the world. So you're kind of oh, getting a... Like a, like a quarter <laughs> like section. A, like a quarter section. Quarter section well, at the an, top. An eighth, yeah, quarter okay. of a hemisphere. Yeah. Paul is very helpfully demonstrating all of this with his hands. Yeah, which, I hope that's helping which, the listeners yeah. visualise that. <laughs> yes. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll have to draw a diagram for the, uh, for the uh, blog post this episode, Scott. <laughs> yes, well, I'll see whether I can do a 3D rendering. Well, I think it you would can... be non-Euclidean, though, so it would blow people's <laughs> minds. Well, I think you, you see that kind of thing when they do like cross sections of the Earth when yeah, they show the yeah, different absolutely. layers. So that, that's how yeah. I'm visualising it. Yeah. With the surface of the sphere, they make up a triangle, but each corner has a 90-degree angle at it, and the sum of all angles is 270 degrees. And similarly, you can walk along the edge, turn right 90 degrees, and get back to your starting place after only two passes. Hmm. Two straight lines might uh, meet at two different points. A sphere's surface is an example of a two-dimensional, positively curved space. There is every reason to assume that curvature applies to three-dimensional space too, and is closely tied to gravity. This largely comes out of general relativity, which was cutting-edge stuff when Lovecraft was writing. I must admit, some of that went straight over my head. The bit about gravity <laughs> is a bit mind-boggling. 
Um, yeah, I, I remember enough physics that that does actually still make sense to me. I seem to recall like visual representations of gravity being like a plastic sheet with a weight in it. Exactly. Which it's kind yeah. of distorts the sheet and then things are kind of drawn drawn into that, so it's kind of curving space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but, but that on a three-dimensional basis where the fact that something has uh, a gravitational pull or something has mass actually ends up deforming space-time around it. Yeah, I try not to think about that. <laughs> We're starting to sound like Melvin Bragg on In Our Time now. <laughs> oh, you're not as well-spoken. So if you do understand that in any more depth, please don't tell us any more. Uh, you know. Some of us already failed our sound check, okay? And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And our Lovecraftian word of the week, this week, is repellent, meaning inspiring aversion or distaste. Repulsive. I, yeah, I mean, this is a really Lovecraftian word to me. I, yeah, Lovecraft used it a lot. And I, I don't know, there's something about it and the way Lovecraft uses it that really captures the fact that a lot of his descriptions of things seem to be rooted in disgust. Mm. Uh, that he sees or perceives things that repel him. And as a result, he describes an awful lot of things as repellent. And we have the synonyms of hateful and offensive. So it's, it's not just that you don't like to look at the thing, you're actually offended by its presence, which yeah. is a more kind of visceral response, really. Or it inspires hate in you, which again mm. seems to be a very Lovecraftian thing. Yeah, yeah. So 30 uses um, in, in his fiction of this word repellent. Yeah. So yeah. it's a pretty commonly used one. Is that more so than non-Euclidean? Because it wasn't that 20 Yeah, non-Euclidean was only about three, I think. Yeah, non-Euclidean was three, and one of those was in a collaboration. Wow. Yeah, it's ten times more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was a lot more interested in hate than physics, or, or mathematics, or geometry, or... Get Whatever your, it is. Get your priorities <laughs> yeah. right, man. Come on. <laughs> so let's take a look at a few quotes from Lovecraft that use the word repellent from the statement of Randolph Carter. Over the valley's rim, a wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapours that seemed to emanate from unheard-of catacombs, and by its feeble, wavering beams I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausolean facades. All crumbling, moss-grown and moisture-stained and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. Can we just take a moment to appreciate that the moon there was a waning crescent moon and gibbous. not a gibbous moon? Oh, yes. Where did the gibbous moon go? Mm. And from the tree... At one end of that tomb, its curious roots displacing the time-stained blocks of pentalic marble, grows an unnaturally large olive tree of oddly repellent shape. So like to some grotesque man, or death-distorted body of a man, that the country folk fear to pass it at night when the moon shines faintly through the crooked boughs. And finally, from Herbert West, Reanimator. His interest became a hellish and perverse addiction to the repellently and fiendishly abnormal. He gloated calmly over artificial monstrosities, which would make most healthy men drop dead from fright and disgust. He became, behind his pallid intellectuality, a fastidious Baudelaire of physical experiment, a languid elagabalus of the tombs. And on to our main topic of the evening, it's Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Hang on a minute, why are we discussing a fantasy game on a horror podcast? It's a horror! It's a game of weird role-playing in the old-school Renaissance <laughs> D&D <laughs> type games. Do you want to do What's that to me? Do, 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 you, like do you want to try that again in English, Paul? <laughs> it is vaguely horror-tinged, if not more than vague. Yeah, no, uh, it is, I think, unashamedly a horror game. Yeah.
first of all, we discuss what is the OSR. You just mentioned the old school renaissance though. So what is the old school renaissance? So back in the late 70s and early 80s, we had the original D&D. And then it's been through several iterations and we're now on fifth edition. However, people have seen fit to go back to the OD&D for its simplicity and it has been released under, what is it called? The Open Game Licence, the OGL. Uh, uh, from Wizards of the Coast, right? Yes. So what this has allowed people to do is basically go back and create sets of rules that model uh, older versions of D&D, but with one limitation that none of them are actually allowed to use the name D&D because that's a trademark. So you'll find lots of references to the original role-playing game or old-school gaming or whatever, you know, but, but no one ever explicitly mentions that it's based on D&D. The game that should not be named. <laughs> So it's got a pretty popular following and there are a whole bunch of games out there that you know people have sat down and, and kind of done a customized rule set or, or pretty much just used the um you know that, that original set of rules as was. Yeah. Um, I mean it started out with, with games like Castles and Crusades and Osric, which were pretty much slightly revamped versions of AD and D. But what's happened, yeah, it's interesting that as the movement has gone on, it's spawned more and more interesting games which move away from uh, perhaps D&D in its original form. And certainly some of the, the games that I've seen come out recently, things like Into the Odd, or th there's a game I've been playing online recently with a chap called David Black uh, called Hive Life 79, which is just a, a weird sort of science fiction game set in an alternate slough of 1979 that's like something straight out of 2000 AD. Yeah, and that uses OSR rules? Yeah. Oh, I, it, it's, again, it's, it, it sort of derives from the, these old D&D rules. But again, what's happened with the OSR is that as these things have gone on, people have modified the rules and taken them in new directions and created new games, which you have sort of got the, the, this basic gameplay style at their core. But, so it's know, becoming almost a generic rule set like GURPS. Except these these new games, you know, quite often the rule sets are actually very different. But it's more of a design ethos and the fact that they've got their roots in old D&D. But in some cases, you know, the games might be almost unrecognisable from that. I mean, one of the things that really excites me about the OSR is the fact that there is this real DIY ethos uh, that's come into it. I mean, almost everyone I meet who's involved as a fan or a player in it is somehow contributing to the overall movement, whether they're publishing their own game or their own scenarios, you know, or fanzines, or you know, even just blogs where they're putting up alternate rules or just you know, tables of weird shit. Uh, everyone seems to be making something, and uh, it is is just fantastic. Well, I guess it's got that kind of freedom because it's not a licensed product. You know, you can't do that for Call of Cthulhu. You can't just start putting out stuff because it's it's a licensed thing. I mean, you can talk to Kozin about getting a license, but that's that's a that's a, a different kind of deal. Speaking of Call of Cthulhu, I mean, one OSR game we should look at in a, a, a future episode at some stage, I think, is probably Silent Legions which is probably the closest to Call of Cthulhu in, in terms of style and substance, uh, and is, is really quite an interesting game, but, but that's a subject for another time. Next, we move on to discussing the core game. Lamentations of the Flame Princess is maybe not one of the newest games in, in the OSR, but it certainly you know, wasn't one of the original ones either. It came along... Uh, the first iteration of it, I believe, came out in 2010. Uh, so it's been around for about five years now. And I mean, during that comparatively short period of time, it's, it's really grown to quite some degree of prominence. I mean, we'll, we'll discuss a bit later just you know, how prominent it's become in the field. But fundamentally, you know, it is still, at this stage, D&D. There are a few rules tweaks, and we'll touch on what those are in a moment, but at its core, it still plays mechanically like old-school D&D. Where the game differs from most uh, OSR games, or certainly you know, standard D&D, is in the tone, in the kind of content. Uh, James Raggi, the writer of the game, uh, who's an American expatriate living in Finland, uh, has has described it as weird fantasy role-playing. Ah, now you're getting more on my line. 
<laughs> and yeah, he certainly seems to be inspired by a lot of the weird fiction that that we talk about uh, on on this podcast. Yeah, I mean, when I first got the rule book, um, or I say got borrowed from you, Scott, a few mm. years ago, and and had a read through it, it did sort of strike me. Well, isn't this just um, you know original D and D? Because it, uh, for most for the most part, the, the core rule book doesn't feel that different because a lot of it is just um you know as we as we discussed is that kind of core um dnd you know open gaming license material exactly but there are it does go on to some content which is, is distinctly different and i think certainly as we'll come on to discuss in the supplements and supporting material that tone comes through much more clearly yeah the core game i think the mechanics, as you say, you know, don't differ hugely from D&D, but the core game still manages to set the tone a little bit, uh, well, actually quite a lot through the artwork. Oh, very much so. Yeah, I, James has, has gone out of his way to commission exceptional artwork for the game. I, some of it may uh, not be to everyone's tastes because a lot of it is really quite visceral and gory and nasty. I think even the front cover pretty much hits you first. It's like, pow, this is what the rest of it's going to be like. I'm holding in my hand a copy of Rules and Magic from the Grindhouse edition, and two things spring to mind when I look at it. First of all, I was looking at it in bed last night, and nowhere on the cover does it say Lamentations of the Plain Princess, but if it comes from a box set, then, you know, fair enough. Uh, second is a very prominent female character depicted on the cover, a flame-haired um, woman. I don't know if she's a princess or not, but she's holding a sword and uh, looks like a dead fella behind her and another woman clutching a baby. I, well, and also is the fact that it, she's dressed in sort of almost peasant garb, almost Puritan garb, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, it does have a very Salem-ish type look to it. Yeah, That's I, how I struck it. I, th this isn't the the sort of cheesecake art. That, oh, it's not Shame yeah. Bikini. Oh God, no! It's, it's it's pretty much the opposite. Many miles from that. I, and I mean, this is one thing that you know, Lamentations of the Flame Princess has been very good at, in that you know, most of the uh, characters who repeat through the artwork um, all the way through um, are women, and you know, they. I I don't think I can. That there's any bit of artwork from this that you know strikes me as being particularly exploitative. If I turn to the centre, except, I'm now maybe, looking, except maybe that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm now looking at a uh, a scene from from uh, some kind of um, well dungeon perhaps uh, of a massively swollen bloated woman uh, being looking like she's in uh, writhing in terror as a, a kind of a dragon-like beast bites one of her breasts and. She is simultaneously giving birth to some kind of uh, dragon-headed demon Can I get emerging from see? between her legs. Well, quite explicitly where it's emerging from. Yes. And yeah. as uh, naked females writhe around at the bottom of the page, stabbing a male character. And what I just noticed yesterday, as a little nod towards uh, the original AD&D player's handbook, there's um, a large-breasted statue up in the background with a little figure uh, levering a, a, a gem, which is the nipple of one of the breasts. You know, like like on the player's handbook where they're levering a, a gem eye out of a figure. So, yeah, that's a fairly. Um, it's provocative. Yeah. yeah, but but at the same time, yeah, I I'd say that you'd. It would be something of a stretch to try to envisage this in any way as being cheesecake art. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the polar opposite. It's really quite repellent. Yeah, and I mean, I heard about that before I saw it. Um, and it, it sounded... When I heard it described verbally, it, it sounded much worse to me than my reaction was to it when I actually saw it in, in black and white. Uh, Matt, do you want to say something about that one? Yeah, this this one, again, it has a very... Um, kind of somewhat overt sexual content. Um, we have uh, this, the previous one being black and white, this one's in colour. Um, it's got a lot of red, um, unsurprisingly, red <laughs> um, colour to it, um, where it appears to be a bedroom scene where I guess they're probably almost marble like statues attempting to make love to a Medusa type figure. Um, her hair flowing down over most of her breasts. Um, but then ending in snakes rather than rather than her hair, carrying a mask with again a very almost Medusa type hair hairstyling. 
And that red sheet on the bed, almost, I'm not, can't quite make it out. Has it got mouths on it? It looks like, almost like a flood of blood with, with mouths. Or it might just be stitching in the cloth. It's just stitching, It suggests I think. mouths to me. Mm -hmm. And also mar big marble wang as well, uh, down in the corner. <laughs> and, and this strange figure in the alcove in the background or in the doorway, holding its genitals. Well, I, I think that's, that's another one of her victims. The, the, yeah, this is, as you said, a, a, a sort of Gorgon-type figure. And you know, she's obviously in mid-coitus with this man who's just been petrified in the process. And that, mm -hmm. that man holding his genitals, or the statue holding his genitals in the background, mm -hmm. is obviously one of her previous lovers. Yeah, now because we, because she's taken off her mask. We might be. It might seem that we're giving quite a lot of uh, discussion time to the illustrations in this book, but I think that's quite justified because I think the artwork in the book lends a lot to the the tone of it. I think without that, certainly just that rule book, for the most part, would seem relatively generic and relatively yes. like you know I've got the Moldvay, uh, I don't know, nineteen eighty one or whatever ODND um, book, and I was looking through that earlier. And a lot of the content's the same. You know, I don't think James would take issue with that. You know, that, that's clearly where it comes from. So it, it takes a little, little bit of digging to find the differences here. But I think the other thing worth saying about this artwork is the fact that it's, uh, on the whole, exceptionally good as well. Hmm. Um, I must admit, I'm more of a fan of the colour work. The colour work yeah. definitely seems to have more detail paid to it. The black and white, while it's, it's interesting subject matter, does seem a little cartoony. Yeah. The black and white seems a little more in style, a bit more like the illustrations that used to feature in OD&D books, that kind of black and white, kind of almost kind of cartoony kind of artwork. But with more recent supplements and with the, uh, the new edition of the rule book, then the art is a bit more consistent all the way through. Mm -hmm. And with some stunning covers on the supplements, but oh, we'll come on to those in a bit, yeah. 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 You talk about how similar this is to basic D&D, and on the whole it is, but there's a few changes which you know, I, I think are quite interesting. There's the fact that you don't have the armour class inflation that you do with other versions of D&D. Your armour class doesn't go up with levels. Um, you, you, your armour class may increase as a result of getting better armour, but it doesn't go up as a function of, of going up in levels. Uh, but the, the fact that Fighters are the only ones to get a bonus in there to hit uh, skill as they yeah. climb levels. Now, with old D&D, it was that, you know, your level dictated your chance to hit and, and different classes. And the number of levels they had to go up before they got a bonus varied. So fighters would, you know, get better at combat very quickly, whereas, say, magic users would get better at combat more slowly. But now in Lamentations, Fighters are the only ones to actually get better at combat as they go through levels. Yes, I, you have specialists in this, and specialists are, are, are sort of the replacement for thieves, rogues, whatever you, you might be used to from whatever version of D&D you've played. Otherwise known as competent characters. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, again, the, because they're not fighters, their attack bonuses don't go up with levels. But what they get instead is skills. Uh, and uh, every character in Lamentations has skills, but specialists... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Specialists get skill points to improve them, uh, which other characters don't. Um, and one of these skills is um, stealth attacks. So if your character is stealthy and is good at sneaking out behind people, you get a bonus to hit anyway if, if they haven't seen you. What Stealth Attack does is it's a, um, a multiplier on the amount of damage you do. So the maximum it can be is six, but that means that if you've got a decent weapon and you get up and you backstab someone and you've got six points in Stealth Attack, then you're doing six times the damage. Yeah, so you roll a five, 30 points of damage yeah. right there. That's a lot. Yeah, and, and yeah, most things that you come across in Lamentations aren't actually that tough. Specialist. Well, you say that, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Specialist sniper, it's the way to go. Yes. But I'd be interested, I mean, I've only played uh, low-level games of it with first, uh, second, maybe third-level characters. So, so that differentiation between the levels, you know, in terms of fighting prowess isn't that great at that level, but I'd be interested yeah. to play it when you've got say, an uh, eighth, ninth, tenth level fighter with comparable level of magic users and so on, that the difference in fighting ability would be, you know, uh, huge. 
It, it does make a huge difference. I We played a game at the club, which we'll talk about a bit later. Mm-hmm. Uh, both Matt and I were in this. Um, and we got, to, I think, to about the 10th level in it. Yeah. And yeah, as a result, we did see these these differences oh, okay. grow. Yeah, and certainly, yeah. For example, for magic users, you know, because this is D and D, and you've got a lot of the classic D and D magic user spells, then some of those spells become incredibly powerful. When you get incredibly skilled specialists, you know, as Matt said, you get a sniper in this. And yeah, you know, th- this we'll, we'll come on to the fact that this is a pseudo historical game in a moment. But yeah. You know, Characters in this may well have firearms. Uh, so your character, you know, had what a flintlock rifle or something like oh, that. Oh yes, a death, a boomstick. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, you you were doing massive amounts of damage if you sniped with that. When I hit, <laughs> <laughs> the dice didn't like you, Matt. Th- th- this is the reason why I dress up very much like an O'Connell type character from the Mummy. Bang! Drop the gun, or rather, bang! Miss! Drop the gun. Try again. <laughs> That's right. You had a bandolier with about eight guns on it, didn't yep. you? <laughs> one of the standout additions to the game, though, is the fact that there is a first-level spell in it that can actually destroy your campaign world. <laughs> they might have just called it "Call Azathoth," really, shouldn't they? <laughs> that spell is summon. Uh, it's. It does pretty much what you might expect from the name. It allows you to summon up an extra-dimensional entity, a demon, and attempt to control it. You can try to summon up something that's really quite powerful. If I remember correctly, you can attempt to summon something that has got a number of hit dice equal to twice your level in it. What you end up with can be quite powerful, but on the other hand, if it is that powerful, your chances of actually controlling it are sweet fuck all. Mm-hmm. You also, you also need a um, computer-generated program to be able to calculate this thing on the fly at the game table. And there is one. I, I actually ended up using it when I was running Lamentations at the club <laughs> recently. There's one on a website uh, with the lovely name totalpartykill.ca, <laughs> which is entirely appropriate. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, yes, <laughs> when I was running this campaign, I think it was Ollie and then Cat both cast Summon within the space of about 30 seconds. O- Ollie's character summoned up a demon, couldn't control it, and so Cat thought, oh, I know, I'll summon up a demon to try to deal with this. Of course, she couldn't control it either. <laughs> and, yeah, it-, it did not end well. Now, when, when you described it to me, because I hadn't read this until last night, you described it to me and I thought, well, that's- to be honest, I kind of thought it sounds a bit crazy or maybe a bit ridiculous that there's this this spell that can end the world and it's just a summon spell. You make it sound like a lot of fun, but is it? Um, then reading the spell, which goes on for about seven or eight pages of the book with numerous tables and charts for various forms that the thing can be in. It could be amoeboid, canine, an eyeball, a fungus, uh, a fog, all sorts of uh, things appendages, um, it can have legs, lumps, maggots, shells, so you kind of get this bizarre combination of descriptors, but also a bizarre array of powers that it can mm. have, including, yes, those ones that you were talking about, which encompass such strange things as the special forms, the collective unconscious desire for suicide. <laughs> So a great, a, a giant floating eye covered in maggots turns up in the room and everyone decides to cut their own throat. Pretty much. And I did enjoy the imaginary equation. I don't know what you do with it. <laughs> one Have plus you read one, that one? One plus one equals three. I'll read just a short extract from it. Number three, imaginary equation. Incorrect yet true. Make have is the two and of them meaning numbers... Power, order, no sufficient, number one. And it carries on like that with some algebra. <laughs> it just stupefies your opponent, really. They just sit going, what? I don't know what you do with that. You react to it in some way. <laughs> with, but it's with incomprehension, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of injecting a bit of William Burroughs into, into your, into your role-playing. A bit of time cube, maybe. A rather sad one. Lament of a mother for her dead child. And it goes on to describe how to, to play this. Why is Scott smiling? Why? <laughs> but they're kind of rather odd things, but they it's kind of described how to springboard from those, you know, and, and how to incorporate those into the game in quite an interesting way. But that 
encompasses a very different kind of approach to, you know, to regular D&D, I think, um, in a way that a lot of the rules in that book don't. Yes, uh, it's very, very evocative, and it sort of sets the tone for the kinds of things that you'll see in the supplements. Yeah. Now, we did an interview with James Raggi, and he's putting out a new edition, which is probably going to be slightly closer in terms of having a set of rules that model this world that he's created through the supplements, as opposed to this rather weird disconnect that there is at the moment. You've got all these, these sort of strange horror-like supplements with all this really weird stuff in there, but at the same time, it's also rooted very much in 17th century Europe. It's a pseudo-historical game. You've got about several pages, a, a small chapter on warfare at sea. Reading the rule book, it kind of felt a little... I was kind of surprised to see mm. that there. A number of other quite detailed things about inheritance and surprising detail. Yeah. But one of the other weird things about the book, as I touched upon, it's a pseudo-historical game. James has talked about the fact that in his campaign at home, you know, he sticks very much to the historical side of things and there are no demi-humans, no dwarves, no elves, no halflings, and no clerics. Racist. <laughs> But at the same time, all of these things are in the core book, or at least in the current editions. So there is, at least for the time being, this rather weird disconnect between the world that's portrayed in the supplements uh, and what you'll see in the core book. I mean, the, the, the published supplements for Lamentations don't have any of these demi-humans in there. I must admit, if I ever run a fantasy game like this, I don't use them either. I, I stick with just pure human setting. What I've done is I've tended to reskin them as different types of people. So, um, you know, for example, I've done a uh, recently done a lot of stuff set in Elizabethan, or sorry, rather Jacobean London. So I've used, for example, the halfling class in there and reskinned it. Oh, I'm as, getting worried as, about you. I'm getting visions of you as Buffalo Bill now, Scott, reskinning <laughs> halflings in your back room. It rubs the dice on the skin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but yes, yeah, basically reimagined them. How about that? Reimagined okay. them as street urchins uh, and right. just changed a few details there and it's worked out quite well. So if you're looking at buying Lamentations of the Flame Princess, you, know, you may be a bit confused about what to buy. Or if you're completists like me, you just go out and buy all of them. <laughs> it's easy. So the first edition that came out in 2010 was what's referred to as the Deluxe Edition. It's a box set, it's got the core rules and magic book that Paul mentioned earlier, it's got a referee's book, uh, and it's got a, a scenario in it. Plus uh, character sheet pads, pencil and dice. Yes. There's the Grindhouse edition, which came out a year after that, which is basically a revised version. It's got much of the same stuff in there, but it's just a revised set of rules. It's simplified slightly, so it's got fewer skills and stuff like that, but, but it's fundamentally compatible. And then there was uh, a hardback uh, rules and magic book that came out, which is basically like a standalone version of this, which is just in a single book. And that came out, I think, about two or three years ago. Mm -hmm. If you're playing it, that's all you really need, which is a good job, really, because the box set is out of print. Yeah, they go for quite a high price when they come up on eBay or any of the second-hand markets these days. But if you just want to try it out, you can actually download uh, the Rules and Magic book free of charge from the Lamentations uh, website. The only caveat is it doesn't have any of the artwork in it. Um, <clears throat> one, the one thing I'm going to do, I do like that always harked back a little bit to uh, Mage degree is that the Rules and Magic book, the hardback, has tantalisingly got the number one at the top of the spine. <laughs> yes, well, there is a second book that's due out, I think, any month now. Uh, he's done a revised version of the Referees book, which has got a load of additional material in it, I know, because I've written some of it. Uh -huh. <laughs> one thing that, that was very conspicuously missing from earlier books, for example, earlier versions of this, was monsters. There were almost no monsters described in it. Uh, it, it described the uses of monsters, but it didn't give the stats for them. Yeah, because, again, this is part of the design philosophy of it, that instead of there being lots and lots of monsters for you to kill, it's, it's almost like Call of Cthulhu in that, you know, when you come across monsters, they should be big, nasty, sort of transgressive things. A monster should be the focus of a scenario. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, there was guidance in the referee's book about how to create monsters and how to use them, but there wasn't a bestiary. 
In the new version, yeah, there, there, there will be, I believe, a fair number of, of monsters and magic items and stuff like that, which there weren't before. I remember when, because he put out an all call on yes. the um, G Plus community, and one of the example monsters that he put up there was frankly ridiculous in its terms that you can't survive this thing. Mm. Um, effectively, it had an attack where if it touched you, it went back through your time stream and then altered a part of your past. So there was very likelihood that you would never have been born <laughs> when you touched this monster. So it's, yeah, you, you meet this thing, you're dead. Well, no, you, correction, you never were born. <laughs> I, and similarly, magic items in this are completely fucked up. You know, th this isn't a game where you will ever get a plus one sword or anything useful or, or healing potions or anything like that. If you get a magic item, it may have some useful aspects to it. It will also destroy your life. It might give you a plus one, to, uh, plus one on fighting, but it will probably uh, drain you of all your blood in the process, or kill the person next to you, or stab you in your sleep. Exactly. Yeah. In other games, when you get a magical sword, you know it will be plus two versus orcs or something like that. In in Lamentations, when you get a magical sword, it's fucking Stormbringer. <laughs> And now we discuss the supplements for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. So there's quite a lot of these out. I mean, he's got numerous authors Big some names. Of whose names are pretty recognisable. We've got Ken Hype, Vincent Baker, Zach Smith, uh, and I believe our very own Scott Dawood may be working on one. I don't know if we can talk about that. Uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's common knowledge. I'm, I'm writing a supplement at the moment called William Shakespeare's The King in Yellow, uh, which I've, I've finished the first round of playtesting for and is shaping up quite nicely. Mm. And the bar is set, Scott, at four Ennie Awards, which Zach Smith's Red and Pleasant Land uh, won at Gen Con this year. Yes, yeah, no pressure. No. <laughs> oh, well, especially as it's got the King in Yellow, it gets my vote any day. Oh, I'll, I'll see what I can do to disappoint you, Matt. Oh. <laughs> and some of these also feature Lovecraftian elements. We've got Carcosa, Scenic Dunsmouth, which I mistook for Scenic Dunwich... But is that is that just a? I don't think you were misled. <laughs> no. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's it's an unusual book that you know sort of like, it, it like a lot of OSR stuff. It includes a lot of randomised elements for mm. creating something unique, and yeah, this allows you to you know, populate um, a sort of rundown Lovecraftian town uh, with a you know, seedy bloodlines and families and stuff like that. We discussed in the part about the core rules how a lot of the tone seems to come through the supplements, uh, and this this Lovecraftian tone in those particular sub, um, supplements, you know, is is evident. Uh, what are the others like? You know, we've got Death Frost Doom, Tales of the Scarecrow, No Salvation for Witches, which no. was written by a good friend of the good friends, Raphael Chandler, who who we interviewed back in episode seventeen a long time ago. Mm -hmm. mm. Now, admittedly, I haven't read many of those that are on there, one day I'm hoping that someone will run them for me. But the one that I have looked at is Tales of the Scarecrow. I'd love to get a hard copy of it at some point when I've got an extra hundred dollars to spare to buy a copy. Um, but I brought the PDF when it came uh, when it came out. Boy, that's deadly! It's, it's almost I unsurvivable! I feeling I have that, but... Yeah, I, cer I certainly have. Lucky. I've got one. <laughs> yeah. Some, I know. Uh, but, um... Yeah, I, there are a few things which typify Lamentations of the Flame Princess uh, scenarios. And this is why you know, we're very happy talking about Lamentations uh, on this podcast, because it is unashamedly a horror game. And these, these scenarios that we've just discussed, are you know, they're straight balls-to-the-wall horror scenarios. Mm -hmm. They are deadly, they are full of unfair elements, there is no concept of balanced uh, challenges or combats in it. You know, if your characters go into this, you know, into, into any one of these, you know, it'll be a miracle if they survive or get through them unchanged or, you know, don't end up sucked away to some hell dimension. Every Lamentations scenario seems to look at something like Tomb of Horrors and just, you know, think, pussies. <laughs> Well, for example, the one we played uh, the other evening, um, Ollie ran for us at the uh, local club, with a character that turned up in it, and Robin snuck around behind, using the sneak attack, which you earlier described, and put a guy, an arrow through the guy's head, um, at short range, doing like 20 or 30 points of damage, 
and the fella just took off his hat and looked a bit cross. Um, <laughs> that, so, to, to, to be fair, that wasn't something that was in the scenario. That was something that, um, that Ollie had lifted from a supplement written by Raphael Chandler. And just but nevertheless, that there. seemed to typify the tone for me, yes. that, that you could end... There's no, there's no concept of the, the later D&D versions which had this term of challenge rating where you'd yeah. figure out the level of the characters and, you know, have a suitable challenge uh, that they could face down. No, there, there's no element of that. I mean, it is, you know, as I mentioned, a lot more like Call of Cthulhu in that respect, that, you know, if you encounter something big and bad and scary, the sensible thing to do in it is try to avoid it or run away. If you take it on in fair combat, you will generally die in this game. And I don't think it's any accident that the example of play in the referee's book, uh, in the box set, is a TPK. Yeah, that, that it shows a group of characters that do exactly this. They they don't take the proper preparations. They run straight into a dangerous situation. They wave their swords around and they get slaughtered. We talked a little bit before about how good the artwork in Lamentations was, and this is more than carried forward in the supplements. The supplements are just things of beauty. Uh, they tend to have very very good cover artwork, good interior artwork, very good layout. I, these are, on the whole, some of the prettiest role-playing supplements you will ever see. We mentioned Red and Pleasant Land in passing. This was the uh, the supplement that won four Ennies this year, written by Zach Smith, which is 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 sort of an odd fusion of Alice in Wonderland and uh, various vampire legends about a secret war between Count Dracula, Dracula and Countess Bathory being fought you know, in Wonderland, basically, <laughs> uh, behind all the mirrors of the world. And, yeah, it's fantastic. And if, you know, it, the book's almost sold out. If you get a chance to get it, you know, well, A, it's going to be worth an absolute bomb someday, but B, it is... Uh, you know, every bit of it is illustrated by, by Zach Smith, who is a professional artist, and it is just one of the most physically attractive, you know, uh, role-playing books I've ever seen. It's one thing I definitely like, because um, we mentioned this in the interview, uh, the aesthetics of the books themselves, um, that they're all unique. And the one, well, the two things I like about Red and Pleasant Land, one, that the dust jacket just wraps itself around the back cover, and also the fact it's cloth rather than just a standard paper. Yeah. So it definitely has that feeling of well, bespoke quality. Following on from official supplements, we take a look at fan material. You know you've made it when you've got fan material. <laughs> well, you kind of do, really. If people, if other people are actually writing about your stuff, then... Yeah. Yeah, and it's utterly appropriate for Lamentations, because I, when you hear our interview with James Raggi, you'll hear the fact that Lamentations came out of his love of uh, publishing zines. Uh, you know, uh, old, good old-fashioned paper fanzines. Lamentations has, in turn, spawned not one but two fanzines, and these are. And this isn't just stuff that's online. I mean, these are physical, you know, uh, uh, printed fanzines, uh, the type of things that you you used to see back in the eighties and nineties. But for, um, yeah, until recently, you almost never did anymore. And that's that's very much yeah, keeping with the ethos of that kind of old-school gaming, really. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a British one from Daniel Sell called Undercroft, which has been going for about a year, and I, I think issue six is due out about now. So it's got a fairly regular publishing schedule. And our good friend Ollie has a um, scenario published in... I'm not sure if it's the next one or the one after that. But something stinks in Stilton. <laughs> yes, yeah, we, we played this at the club a while back, and, and it's a fantastic scenario. Never look at a cow the same way again. And I think this will be pretty much the whole uh, fanzine taken up with that scenario. Oh, easily, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a 10,000-word scenario, so, yes, it'll fill a whole issue. And, yeah, highly recommended. I, I think that's due to come out in issue 8, from what he said. But, yeah, I mean, Ollie also had uh, a magic item published in issue 5, I think. Oh, was that the Washerwoman statue? Yes. Yeah. And a second title by the name of Vacant Ritual Assembly by Clint Krauss author of such games as Walk in the Winterwood? Don't, don't walk, walk in don't the Winterwood. Walk in winter woods. Don't walk in the Winterwoods, that's it. And uh, Roanoke and uh, numerous other things with three issues out. And 
he also authored the game that we played the other evening at the club. Yes, the Stygian Garden of Abelia Prem. And that was a lot of fun. It was, yeah. I did yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. It had that kind of dark, gothic, kind of uh, twisted fairy tale kind of uh, feel to it. It was, yeah. It was nice. And also, I, one of the nice things about the OSR in general is the fact that, you know, for most of the games, there isn't a lot of difference in the mechanics, or at least, you know, where there are differences, it's very, very easy to convert. So, the, I mean, these two fanzines we've just talked about are explicitly for Lamentations of the Flame Princess. But there's other stuff out there that's, you know, just described as being for OSR or for old-school compatible games, which you could use just as easily with Lamentations. And now we talk about our experiences playing Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Now, I've played the game probably a handful of times, most of the time when it's Scott that's been running it. But the big, the big experience that sticks in my mind is, again, when Ollie uh, ran it at the local tabletop club, where me and Scott played in uh, the game was by Avengers Satanis. Uh, yes, yeah, it's called The Islands of Purple Haunted Putrescence. Yeah, what a title. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, th this sort of goes back to the fact that it doesn't have to be an official Lamentations mm. thing to work with it, because yeah. I, I don't think the Purple Islands was actually officially published for Lamentations. No, but, no, it but, was just, yeah. uh, just OSR, I believe, or yeah. use, using the open game licence. Um, yeah, that was, that was a lot of fun. That was very, very gonzo. Yes. Yeah. yeah, kind of nice weird mix-up of fantasy and science fiction. <laughs> Including a big reset button. Who can't go wrong with that? <laughs> I lost track of how many times we hit that bloody reset button. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, Ollie let me play the Alice out of Red and Pleasant Land. Yeah, oh, uh, bloody hell. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I ended up taking in a slightly different direction. Uh, kicking off that bloody power every time it didn't need it. <laughs> oh, hey, how can I make this situation even more messed up? Oh, I know, it'll all get fine in a minute. <laughs> yes, the, the, the Alice, basically a character class that's been designed to model uh, Alice from Alice in Wonderland. The special power of the class is the fact that when it gets exasperated enough, then you roll on a random table and uh, you know something happens that is generally to that character's benefit to help rectify the situation. And that may be finding a secret door somewhere, it may be a change in the weather, it may be the fact that uh, one of your opponents suddenly changes drastically in size. Yeah, yes, weird shit happens. Mm -hmm. Well, as well as playing the games that, that Matt's already mentioned, uh, you know, the, the games that Ollie's run at the club, I've run uh, three campaigns so far and a number of one-shots. The first campaign that I ran was one at the club a while back where I ended up using uh, Zack Smith's Vornheim book, which I think is probably the single most useful role-playing book that I've ever bought. It basically allows you to generate a city on the fly. You know, as opposed to most fantasy city books where, you know, it'll give you maps and locations of, you know, if, if you want to find a costermonger, you've got one here. If you want to find a haberdasher, you find one here, and here are a couple of plot hooks to do with them. Instead of that, it's, it's mostly random tables and, and rules for generating different things on the fly, like chase scenes and so on. It all works beautifully. And so as a result, you know, it turned a city campaign into something that was zero prep, uh, which, you know, as a lazy GM, I really appreciate. You're a lazy GM? <laughs> Never. <laughs> and more recently, I've been playtesting uh, the, you know, the supplement I mentioned that I'm writing at the moment, uh, William Shakespeare's The King in Yellow, uh, which, yeah, has, has been a lot of fun. Uh, I've run that with two different groups so far, and it is turning into something quite appallingly horrible, mm -hmm. which... So, something yeah. very Dawood. And finally, to wrap things up, let's have a quick reflection of our experiences with playing original old-school D&D and how that compares to all this fancy new OSR stuff. I played D&D, you know, in the early 80s. I think this is kind of getting back to that kind of feel. I very much feel that D&D was a very simple game back then, and then with AD&D and then, you know, second edition and, and, and so on and so forth, the game ceased to become 
it, it, it kind of changed. It became, story became more important. Some aspect of investigation kind of came in. And it became more serious. It became more serious, yeah, definitely. Because I've played games over the last, you know, few years of, um, I think, 3.5 and, and so on. And it became a kind of a, an investigation around the town. It felt quite a lot like a, a Call of Cthulhu game in some ways. And I, I found myself sitting there thinking, when are we going to get to the dungeon? Because... Uh, this doesn't really feel like D&D anymore. And then at IndieCon a couple of years back, I was playing, well, we were chatting with a couple of friends of ours, Rich Stokes and Robin Poole, and we sat down and Rich ran a game using the original D&D um, rules. And it was a kind of a tongue-in-cheek game. Robin and I were playing, we insisted on having a caller so only, only one person could actually <laughs> speak to the DM, which was, you know, in the original rules. And everybody else had to sort of discuss things together in order to get filled. And that, that was kind of, that was a bit of a laugh. But what it did do, um, and not because of that, but because we were, it was a kind of a light-hearted game. And it was also based on exploration. So Rich was generating a random dungeon as we went through. And it was kind of creating story as we went. And that really captured the feel of playing original D&D to me in a way that, past a couple of decades of occasionally playing D&D, really didn't. And it captured something that wasn't, I don't think it's just about nostalgia or wanting to play, you know, that, that thing, that you, that lost dream of, you know, playing like a kid again. It, it, yeah. just, had, it just seemed to, to capture that feel somehow. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. It was just shaking off a lot of the baggage. Yeah. And that's what yeah. Lamentations seems to do as well. I mean, I don't know how other people play it, but certainly when we played it the other evening... There was a lot of humour in there, mm. but we would play. It was like playing D and D to oh, me. Oh yeah, also not over bloated with at least the versions of D and D I've played, where I played when I was at university and it was three point five. Um, so many goddamn rules, and also such dense setting yes. that you you almost yes. had to read a dozen books and be in a campaign that lasted seven years. Otherwise, you weren't really doing it. And your yeah. character had to have lived through to 20th level and that took you like a year a level or something. Yeah, just so slow and but, but, so involved. But, but also as a DM, it's that whole idea that, you know, here you've got your setting books and it's, it's like sitting down and reading a 300-page encyclopedia and you've got to know all this stuff in order to present this game setting and so on. And everybody's think, got to be on a level playing field with the challenge ratings yeah. and so on. Is it, I, and, and I think, you know, that, that's, that's one very clever thing with Lamentations. The fact that um, by setting it in a historical setting of 17th century Europe, there is as much or as little detail there as you want to draw upon without having to feel like you've got to memorise all this game-specific stuff. You know, if you want to draw upon lots of historical stuff, there's, there's the information out there that you can, you, know, you can use for verisimilitude. Alternatively, if you just want to play a game in a house on a hill where you're wandering around smashing up statues with a sledgehammer, you don't, need to, you don't even need to care about where it's set. Yeah, I mean, I can recall you know, when we used to play D&D, I wasn't aware of it being set in a in a fantasy land particularly. Nor was I, or equally, nor was I aware of it being in medieval Britain. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't like Lamentations, but um, it was just in a land. It, it didn't really matter. It wasn't. It wasn't really about the wider setting. It was just where you were, and it was the, you know. And I can remember thinking, could you possibly do a game outside of a dungeon? <laughs> <laughs> and that was kind of a logistical nightmare. I couldn't yeah. really see how you could do it, but I, I, I remember having almost exactly the same thought. I, this 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 will show just how old I am. I remember, yeah, I started out like you did with D and D, and I remember back in the very early days of White Dwarf, reading one of the first Call of, in fact, possibly even the first Call of Cthulhu scenario that they published in there. You know, having read a bunch of D and D uh, modules, I had a look at this and I thought, how the hell do you run this? There's no dungeon map. Yeah. Yeah. What What are you supposed to do with it? <laughs> yeah. Also, in those early White Dwarfs, there were articles, I don't remember the exact title, but something like Monsters Have Feelings Too. <laughs> and it was this kind of encouraging you to think about the, mo the monster's motivation and sort of feel for the monster, which at the time felt very progressive and um, the, the right thing to do. Why would there be a beholder in this room? Has it been in there forever? 
you know, why would it be there? Think about this and the community in the dungeon and why would there be a shop in the dungeon and, and stuff like that. <laughs> but you know what? That stuff was fun. And once you started taking that out, I think maybe that was where the rot set in. <laughs> Personally, I, I, I don't see this as being an either-or thing. I mean, and, and there's certainly a continuum there. And you know, when we look at a lot of the published Lamentation stuff, you know, there, there is, you know, it's not just kind of lots of random things in there and lots of you know, uh, strange little bits in a dungeon. I mean, some of them are, but you know, th- th- there's, there tends to be a sort of thematic purity uh, to a lot of them. There's, there's a reason, there's a bit of history as to why all this stuff is there. But at the same time, you, know, you can play it with, as, a, as a player without knowing any of that stuff and just wander through, you know, press all the buttons and see what blows up. I think that's the fun thing, you can just sit down as a player. As you would with Call of Cthulhu, you don't need to be versed in the background. And that's part of the appeal of that, is it is just a, a mock historical setting. Well, as we mentioned, we have recorded an interview with James Raggi. I think our initial intention was to do what we've done with, with other such episodes and include the interview as uh, a little bit here. For a start, we've talked a lot about Lamentations ourselves. There's a lot to talk about and we've had a lot of things to say. We haven't found nearly as much to say about it as James did. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, it's almost as if we've talked a lot. <laughs> so, um, to say this being a three-hour episode, what we're going to do is put out the interview as a separate episode next week. Yeah, it's oh. great stuff. I mean, I really enjoyed chatting to him, and um, afterwards I felt quite enthused. You know, not just about the whole game, but gaming in general, and um, his his kind of take on games and the gaming culture and, and the approach that he takes. Games shouldn't um, be fun! <laughs> yeah, I was, I was converted. I've seen the light! <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, one thing we didn't really touch on in this is how you know, much of a success Lamentations has become and the fact that it's sort of taken over the OSR scene to a large extent. Or certainly the most visible and most popular game there. And, and most think- any award-winning. Yeah, but I think a big part of this is down to James's personality, the fact that, you know, he is such a presence on social media and on forums, the fact that he's so good at marketing himself, his games, and the stuff that he's enthused about. Dedicated and hard-working. He's, yeah. you know... Well, we talked about this the other day, and I was saying how he goes to every convention. I think he just goes to the ones that I, I happen to go to, but so I think <laughs> he's at all of them. Uh, so, you know, he's been sat at that table on his own at Dragon Meet, for probably five years yeah. and you kind of walk around and there's this long-haired fella sat you know behind a table with like half a dozen supplements on it saying pay what you want yeah you know, i've been a little intimidated by that because it's like well how much should i pay yeah. uh, i'm already sure and equally you know when you go to dragon meet and you see people like that sometimes they've got this obscure game you've never heard of and you know you never see them again and He's yeah. a standout example of, of that not being the case. You just reminded me of my first encounter with James back in 2010 at Dragon Meet or 2011, which was the, you know, that was in the days when the Collective Endeavour was still going and I had a lot of friends, you know, like Malcolm Craig and Gregor Hutton uh, and Andrew Kenrick who, who, who worked on that store. And I, I think it was Andrew Kenrick wandered over afterwards having spoken to James Raggi and said, that guy over there, I'm convinced he's your son. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the following year, I think it was the two of us went over to his stand and said that, yeah, we played Lamentations a few times. And it was he was, looked at us in surprise and go, you played it multiple times? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I managed to put you off yet. <laughs> Almost like he's disappointed somebody enjoyed it. <laughs> <sighs> The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. It's been a while, but we have some new backers to announce. Yeah, we've got two of them. Oh God, no singing. Please, no singing. (laughs) No, sadly... No singing this week, folks. Huzzah! I mean, oh, what, what a shame. Sorry. <laughs> if you didn't know, we run a Patreon campaign, and those that put in $5, we sing in the manner of, in, in inverted commas, a barbershop quartet. Jackson yes. Lyers makes up the quartet. Yeah, yeah. There, there are three of us, and we've never cut any hair, but we are a barbershop quartet. <laughs> uh, if you put in $3, we uh, drink a toast to you, and for a dollar, you get our eternal thanks. So... Our thanks goes to Rafe Ball. Thank you, Rafe. Indeed, thank you, Rafe. We're not singing. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I think our general listenership is probably thanking you for that. <laughs> you shouldn't thank them for giving less money, Matt. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we should actually charge people more not to sing. Oh. Yeah, we, we're doing this wrong. Well, we're certainly doing it wrong. I'm not sure about that. Though. <laughs> and our other new backer, who gets a toast from us, is Shane McLean. So thank you, Shane. Indeed. Thank you very much, Shane. Cheers. Yeah. One new thing that we're thinking of offering to our Patreon backers is an invitation to join us uh, on perhaps a, I don't know when, Scott, a Sunday afternoon? Yep, that works. Sometime will be negotiated uh, for an online chat, either through Skype or perhaps Google Hangouts, if Matt can get his machine. I was going to say, uh, you're going to subject them to the horror of my internet connection. <laughs> if, 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 if Matt can get enough steam built up in his machine to uh, maintain the... And, and if not, you can you can enjoy every third word of what he says, like yeah, like we do when we talk to him online. <laughs> yeah, usually full of expletives. Apparently, the, the the internet doesn't work in in Matt's house. No, because I've got a word. I've got a like, ten year old laptop that pretty much just handles word processing and hammering out scenarios on. I don't do it. Yeah, only does video word shit. processing, word processing, and Kickstarter. That's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the only two functions that it can manage. It sometimes manages eBay, but even crashes trying to load that. <laughs> so the plan is to invite people along uh, and chat over. If anybody's got anything they want to say about some of the previous um, episodes that have been uh, been out in the past few weeks. Or, or any ideas about upcoming episodes. Yeah, we'll put forward um, some of the episode ideas that we've got and we can chat those over. Or, or if you just want to tell Paul how wrong he was for removing a tracked fish from 7th Ed. <laughs> he, he never gets tired of hearing that. <sighs> Even though he put it on my birthday card. <laughs> I, I edited that, Matt. <laughs> so uh, we'll release more news about that. Yeah, watch this space. That sounds like the end of part one. Okay, well, come back next episode for a very, very long chat with James Raggi. So it's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com A languid, a like a, a like a. Oh, yes! Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> In the background, you can hear just, West, you bastard! Uh, West! <laughs> 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 <laughs>